again, fellow travellers, and welcome to Podcast 173 in our series You Should Have Been There with me, Mick Webb, and me, Simon Calder. And today we're going to be revisiting the theme of slow travel, in particular the slow way to get from the UK to Turkey. It's something of an antidote to the trans-European race from London to Istanbul that we featured in podcast 165. And there's no one better to talk about this and indeed all things Turkish than Pat Yale, writer, traveller, travel writer, long-time resident of Istanbul. Anything else we should add, Pat? Even longer-time resident of Gareme in Cappadocia, Simon. Nice to speak to you and to Mick. Hello, Pat. Welcome to You Should Have Been There. And um, I'm looking forward to finding out from you where I should go in Turkey, if I go there, because I'm sorry to say I haven't made it there yet. Oh, well, you're spoilt for choice there. It's a very big country with all sorts of things to offer which we can get to later on. Well, do bear with us for a couple of uh, minutes, Pat. We've got our own customary look at parish notes and contributions from our listeners. For example, Sean Harrop Griffiths sent us a, a tweet or an X or whatever it's called saying, really enjoyed both episodes and hoping to walk in the Pyrenees next year. Can you share route travel details, please? Thanks. And I have done that now, Sean. And by the way, uh, if you... um, haven't uh, heard the tale of Simon and my adventure in the Pyrenees, it's um, the subject of the last two uh, podcasts and highly recommended, at least by me. Um, And it was, I should say, a very enjoyable, varied, although a bit of a rushed trip and uh, uh, a mixture of slow and fast travel, if such a concept exists. The slow part being our walking, particularly uphill, and the fast bit being the constant race against the clock to catch trains, buses and planes and get to the um, French Hotel Orgit in time for supper at seven o'clock on the dot. Which we just about managed, but um, we, of course, uh, got very lost along the way. Um, Dr. Mike Beer, by the way, says that we're his current commute listening. Very pleased uh, to hear that, Mike. Thank you. And we'd love to hear from you on the subject of just-in-case items to go in your bag, in your backpack, or indeed your pocket. So far, we've been offered a complete first aid kit, a space blanket, $200 or euros, I suppose, and a ukulele uh, just of course send your ideas on x formerly known as twitter to at you should have bt or leave us an audio message on anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there pat is there anything in particular that you include in your traveling bag for just in case moments well i'm afraid nobody's going to agree with me about this but i will always have a book because i'm an inveterate reader so i've always got to have something for a moment when there's a gap in the travel or the train hasn't arrived or whatever. Well, we will get on to an old-fashioned um, but very new book um, following Miss Bell Travels Around Turkey in the Footsteps of Gertrude Bell, just published by Trailblazer Publications and by none other than Pat Yale. We'll be uh, talking more about that uh, shortly. But um, back in the summer, if anyone can remember that far back, we covered the trans-European 
race that required almost 100 competitors to reach Istanbul as quickly as they could using only public transport. After 57 hours on the roads and the rails, just 60 seconds separated the two fastest, with uh, Eleanor Parker winning the prize, just pipping Bram Hootenboss to the post. I mean, I didn't have too much of a strategy. I was quite opportunistic. Um, I ended up being on predominantly buses from Venice onwards, and they were just back-to-back buses. There was barely any breathing time between them. So strategy was no showers, barely any sleep or food. Uh, And then me and Bram, my competitor, we ended up on the same bus uh, towards Istanbul. Um, So we were both getting very stressed and anxious as it came into Istanbul. And then, yeah, had a really exciting like dash through Istanbul Centre to get to the park. Uh, So I think Bram took a slightly different turning at some point, uh, which was a bit longer. So I just made it there in time. Well, great work from Eleanor Parker there and commiserations to Bram. Um, But Pat, I'd like to ask you about the journey to Istanbul that you made, which couldn't have been more different from Eleanor's, could it? No, Mick, it couldn't. I decided in the last, the first week of July that I was going to belatedly, really, retrace the the Orient Express original route, not the posh Orient Express, but the original one, which meant actually taking the ferry from Dover to Calais. Um, And yes, I'm a great believer in public transport and slow travel. Um, And it took me 12 days to get from London to Istanbul, which is exactly the opposite of that competition, I think. Um, And obviously, you you have a lot of adventures along the way. So various people said to me at the end, did you not enjoy it very much? And I said, well, I think that's not really quite the issue. When you do it that way, the slow way, it's about the experience. And some of it's very good and some of it's not so good. Um, And some of it's very entertaining and some of it is tedious. Um, It's about an adventure, really. Can I press you a bit on, um, well, let's start with the really good bits. The really good bits. Um, Probably the people that you meet along the way. I I mean, the people that you chat to um, on the train. I met some very, I met a lot of Germans in particular who were keen environmentalists and who were traveling overland for environmental reasons but who also, unfortunately, complained vociferously about German rail, which was a bit of a surprise because I'd always thought it was better than British rail, but turns out apparently not. Um, So I'd say that was probably the highlight rather than the actual trains themselves. I wonder, Pat, who were the most intriguing characters you met along the way? Well, um, I'll start with the one who was not so nice that I met on the uh, Bucharest train, a very, very, very large man with an equally large suitcase who was extremely upset to find that there was no place on the train to put his luggage. And I had to have him actually ejected from our carriage on the grounds that he was going to be impossible to travel with for 21 hours on a train without even a bottle of water available. That's the downside. Uh, The upside were... Very nice young man I met um, who was, he worked on boats and he was traveling from with me from Paris to Munich with his little <laughs> dog in a bag beside him in first class. And when I asked him, he said that the airline wouldn't carry the dog because it was nine kilos instead of eight. That was their, that was their maximum, <sighs> which surprised me. I didn't know they had a maximum, frankly. 
The other one who was really interesting was um, a young German man, a hipster type man, traveling with his family, which was very brave on this 21 hour last sector. And um, he said to me at one point, he didn't know what to do because he didn't know that when you go across the Turkish border, even by land, there's a, an airline type scanner. And he said his hobby was making wooden spoons. So he had in his bag a small axe and a number of knives. And he didn't know whether it was better to declare them or just put them through the scanner. So uh, yes, I said I thought it was probably best to declare them. Then I went and checked with the conductor and he said, probably put them through the scanner. And the most peculiar thing was that when we actually got there, I'd said to this guy, well, I'll stand pretty close to you so that if they stop you and you can't understand the Turkish, I can help you. So they let him through without any question. And then they stopped the guy between us who had a little bum bag and a small rucksack. They um, made him unpack his bag, having just allowed a small axe and sorted knives oh, through. So that was yeah. rather good. <laughs> <laughs> Splendid. <laughs> uh, I mean, just getting back to the, the, the sort of slow travel business, um, I have uh, on several occasions over the last few years um, contemplated going to Spain, which I'm particularly fond of, um, by train. And each time I've been put off by the sheer expense of it, um, even allowing for the fact that, you know, one could obviously really enjoy a longer journey. Um, But uh, I just thought, well, this is actually approximately five times more expensive than flying. Um, And so I've kind of capitulated and gone for the plane option. Well, I'd flown to from Istanbul to London and that had cost £135 and 10 hours door to door. So that 12-day trip that I took overland by rail and ferry, that cost £600 in transport costs. And that's without the costs of the hotels yeah. along the way and the food and so on. So personally, although I'm a huge fan of public transport, I have considerable reservations about people who honestly think that this is a solution to travel issues because I think really it you have to have both time and money to be able to do yeah. it. You explained very clearly how, how uh, more, much more expensive it was to travel by train and going over land. In fact, Mick and I, on our trip to Toulouse for the Pyrenees, I think we paid about £100 each return. Um, I've just checked and it's over five hundred pounds if you uh, if if you take the train. So uh, that's why we flew anyway. But on with the main event. And you, Pat, are here in the UK for the launch of your book, as mentioned, following Miss Bell travels around Turkey in the footsteps of Gertrude Bell. Um, tell me why did you um, decide to? take on such a project? Well, that's a very good question, Simon. Um, it actually, it, it was a freak chance that led me to this. It, I mean, often people say that you meet the person you're going to spend your life with when you least expect it. Well, I discovered the project that was going to take over my life when I was least expecting it. It was a day in Istanbul when I'd been bitten by a dog in the park and I'd had to spend most of the day running around the city trying to find which was the hospital that did the rabies jab. Oh And at four o'clock, I was just heaving a sigh of relief. I was nearly back at home, heaving a sigh of relief. And I saw that there was an exhibition of an Ottoman historian's daughter's guest book. And I thought, well, that would be just a nice way to end up the day. It won't take long. It won't be too demanding. And I went in and sure enough, I saw an autograph from Gertrude Bell. And that 
was one of these strange things. You know, I, I it just started a chain of thoughts in my mind. And I just started investigating where she might have been and realized sort of gradually that she'd been to so many places. She'd been not just to all the places that we all go, the Ephesus, the Troy, the Bodrum, but that she'd also been to all these villages and really remote, difficult to get to places that even today, very, very few people go to. And so, I mean, I've always, most of my working life has been around Turkey. And I realized that actually this was a great opportunity that I could link up all the places that she'd gone to make an itinerary. And then I could revisit these places and compare what she saw, as described in her diaries and her letters, with what I would see when I went there now. Um, and that was the project. And, you know, it took seven months to complete the journey. And, you know, then obviously the time it took to read it and to write it and get it published. Um, but it certainly has taken up a very large chunk of my life just as the result of that chance encounter with a with a guest book. Would it be fair to say that Gertrude Bell is not generally as well known as she should be? I actually um, had to um, refresh my memory, as they say, having um, got a bit mixed up with Vanessa Bell, one of the uh, Bloomsbury group. Um, but her main claims to fame, well, actually, she did lots of things, didn't she? She really was a, a Renaissance woman of the 19th century, if I can uh, mix my centuries, metaphors and everything else. Absolutely. I call her a consummate overachiever because <laughs> I, as a young woman, she learned Farsi well enough to translate um, important uh, Persian poetry. Wow. She was a mountaineer so so good that she has a peak named after her in the Alps. Um, wow. And that is aside from what was really the claim to fame in her life, which was her explorations in Iraq, Syria and Arabia, and then her work during the First World War with the British, and then after the First World War in Baghdad, where she helped to um, to coach the, the, the young guy who was going to become the king of Baghdad. And she founded the National Museum in Iraq. So, she, yeah, she, was, she had her finger in many pies, and she was, as you said, a Renaissance woman. And it, it is very sad in some ways that she's been rather forgotten and I think eclipsed by sort of anti-colonial views, yeah. I think, as well. Yeah. And so it sounds to me as though following in her footsteps would certainly be um, uh, an exciting and um, and revealing experience. How, how, how was it for you? Well, it, it turned out to be more exciting and revealing than I'd probably intended. I mean, Turkey ha is one of these countries where, you know, we're often on the edge of a crisis. And particularly in the southeast of the country, you know, there is often, there are often problems. And when I started out on my journey, things were quite peaceful and, and really relatively positive. And so in the west half of the country, when I was pursuing her, it was all very straightforward, and it was all sunny uplands and, you know, how beautiful is Bodrum and or things like that. But by the t but unfortunately, we had an election where the government didn't do as well as it had assumed it would. And after that, the atmosphere considerably deteriorated so that when I was traveling in the southeast, uh, there were no, all, all tourists had disappeared because it was regarded as being too dangerous. And um I had the sense, I mean, from the point of view of someone writing a book, it was useful because it made my journey more like Gertrude's yeah. because it, it was more um, tense and slightly more risky than perhaps I would have 
anticipated when I set out. I wonder, Pat, would you be kind enough to uh, read something of your book for us so we can get a flavour of it? If, that, if, if, if you don't mind, I will do that. And I'm going, what I'll read you is a piece that's about Mardin in the southeast, which Simon may have been to. Very beautiful city that has had a very up and down history. So I'll read you a little bit about that if it's okay. Presiding over the rocky plateau against which Mardin reclines is what Gertrude described as an inconceivably splendid fortress, where she recorded carved lions and leopards guarding the gate, while writing snippily that she saw nothing old, by which she meant nothing Byzantine. Throughout the 1990s, the castle was dominated by two giant golf balls, the monitoring devices of a state at odds with its own citizens. There had been no question then of going anywhere near it, nor does there seem much hope now. But the trudge up the rock on the off chance offers as a consolation prize the opportunity to gaze out across the Mesopotamian plain towards Syria. It's a spellbinding vista, a patchwork quilt in shades of ochre, spread over the landscape as far as the eye can see. Of that view, Gertrude wrote that it was the most glorious thing I ever beheld, more beautiful than the sea, and, when I saw it, perpetually varied by the storms that came sweeping over it. Even now, that comparison with the sea lingers on. Hunkered down at the back of Mardin's busy bazaar, I meet Tajetin Topalu, a hipster of a man whose beard makes a mystery of his age. Tajetin is a shamaranja, one of an elite band of craftsmen who spend their days layering tinsel paper over tinsel paper to create multicoloured evocations of the shamaran, a Mesopotamian fertility deity with the head of a woman and the body of a snake. The shamaran is a fashionably gender-fluid being. In Mardin, the locals insist that it was a female who governed the snakes. In Tarsus, however, they're equally convinced that she was a he and a bit of a dodgy he at that, who clambered onto the roof of a hammam to eye up a beautiful woman, leading the locals to lynch him. Shamarans are big business in Mardin, and there are shamaranges aplenty to choose from. Well, that was marvellous. And um, I'm very now tempted to, um, uh, I guess, embark on a journey following Ms. Yale <laughs> travels around Turkey in the footsteps of uh, Pat Yale. Um, so fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. Now, I uh, know that you have lived in Turkey for many years. Um, what What's happened to the place while you've been there? Well, transformative change, of course. Um, I mean, when I first arrived <coughs> to live in Gurame in Cappadocia, I moved into a village that had tourism, but it was still an Anatolian village in which Anatolian life continued. By the time I left in 2016, I felt that it had been subsumed by a tsunami of tourism and that had rendered living there very difficult if you weren't a tourist. Um, having said that, the upside, and I always have to remember this, is that when I first went to live in Gurame, most of my neighbours were really quite poor. There were a couple who weren't, but mostly they were. By the time I left, most people were at least comfortably off and some people were extremely well off. And everybody now had all the mod cons that that we have in our life and whatever I may personally have felt you can't begrudge people that and I think one of the ways to explain the success of the government in spite of many things that you would think might bring it down I think it's because they were able to bring modern life to yeah. Turkey in the course of particularly the early 2000s but even now, I mean, when you're in Istanbul and you see the incredible infrastructure improvements, um, it, 
you know, it, there is a sense in which ordinary people do have a right to be grateful for the incredible changes and the incredible improvements. Although at the moment it is very difficult because we have hyperinflation and that, of course, starts to undermine people's lives as well. How has the sort of actual fabric of Gurame changed, you know, in terms of buildings um, well, and, and the like? Gurame is a, was a village where most people were living in caves carved into a crazy rock landscape um, with stone parts of their house built in front of the caves. So they were mainly living in the front part, but using the backs of the cave parts for storage, for animals and so on. And when I moved in there, a lot of those houses were ruinous and in in many cases have been actually, um, people had been asked to move out because they were seen as dangerous and they'd been moved into modern houses. But by the time I left, almost all those houses had been renovated as hotels, as boutique hotels, because around about 2013, most locals had realised that the answer to making money from tourism was not backpacker hostels. It was to somehow buy one of the old cave houses, convert it into a boutique hotel, and then sell balloon tours to your visitors. And that way, you would make significant money. Well, Pat, as I said at the beginning, I've never been to Turkey. So, um, you must come soon. <laughs> I will do. But what, what would you recommend um, for, um, a, say, a flying visit or maybe a leisurely couple of weeks, shall we say? Um, given that uh, I like walking, swimming, eating, chatting, <laughs> architecture and uh, I don't like crowds except at football matches. Okay well I'm going to say Istanbul because I, I mean I really do think pretty well much anyone who comes to Turkey needs to see Istanbul. Fantastic city especially because we have the Bosphorus running through it so pretty much everywhere you can well in the in the heart of the historic city you can get wonderful water views even if you're not at a beach so I'm always going to recommend that. I still Obviously, think that Cappadocia is absolutely wonderful, especially if you like walking. Um, there are valleys that spread out all around Gurame and, and the other settlements, which are a marvellous hiking country. Um, less well known, perhaps, is there's an area around Affion in the western side where there's a walking route called the Phrygian Trail, and that takes you through much more remote remote places that perhaps not many outsiders go to. And that's particularly beautiful at the end of May and beginning of June when poppies, purple and white poppies, are in flower. So you're walking in a landscape with these incredible fields of poppies which are grown for medical opium. Oh, really? Oh, that's um, the And that's the Phrygian Trail? The Phrygian, the Phrygian Way or the Phrygian Phrygian trail. Way, yeah, yeah Phrygian. Um, but, I mean, I'm also going to obviously speak very highly of the southeast, which, you know, at the moment, I think it, it's fairly quiet and calm over there. And I'm very fond of Urfa, for example, which which features a lot in my books, my book, which has um, beautiful golden architecture, very distinctive. Sorry, what was it that again, more, Pat? I didn't quite. It's called Urfa. Its full name is Shanli Urfa, but its short name is Urfa, U-R-F-A. Okay. And um, it has a. A, a more Arabic feel to it and the heart of it is very beautiful and it's the town that people would go to these days to visit Gobekli Tepe which is the very famous archaeological site that has been being excavated over the last I don't know 20 years say that is older than Stonehenge. 
uh, both both Urfa and indeed Mardin, very close to the Syrian frontier. Um, from the safety point of view, how worried should travellers be in that part of Turkey? And more widely, um, how safe do you find Turkey is, particularly um, f- from the point of view of a woman? Um, I think the question of the border is not so much of, a, of an issue now, because firstly, the situation in Syria, while it is still simmering on, is calmer than it was, but also the Turks have built a border wall all the way along the Syrian border, which means that there's there's not any coming and going in a significant way now. So I don't think people need to worry from that point of view. They always need to keep a little eye out in case anything suddenly goes wrong. But at the moment, I would say that travelling in the southeast is you know perfectly okay. Um, on the whole, what I would say about being a woman, if you're a young woman, I do think there is a degree of, of harassment, probably. I don't think it's anything like as bad as in some countries, and I don't think that should put anyone off. But um, but, uh, but on the whole, as someone who's lived there for a quarter of a century, what I would say about Turkey is that it's, it feels like a very safe place most of the time. There's um, Alcohol is obviously not... Uh, an integral yeah. part of Turkish culture. So when I come back to the UK, I often feel more anxious because of public drunkenness than I ever feel in Turkey, where on the whole, there isn't public drunkenness. So you don't, as a woman, often feel threatened in that way. And ro- public uh, robbery is, is a, at a relatively low level, street robbery. Um, so I don't, I don't honestly think people need to be overly worried and public transport very safe often very clean modern very inviting and and never any issues really on public transport or very very rarely of course you can never say never really i I do have to for for mixed benefit mention the um, shoeshine trick in istanbul do you want to tell us how that works or should i have a go you have a go, Simon. Well, okay, so this is this is um, brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Um, uh, you're walking through typically the old part of uh, Istanbul. It's absolutely lovely. Um, you see uh, somebody walking in front of you, and it, uh, it's a shoe shiner, and he's got all his kit there uh, ready, and he drops a brush. And so you're obviously wanting to help him. Um, and so you pick up the brush and you hand it back to him. He is effusively generous. And he says, oh, Mick, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to give you a shoe shine." And if you say yes, well, things, and I, I never have said yes, um, I've, I've just sort of run a mile because I've heard about it, but apparently things can get quite um, uh, aggressive and you will be asked for five euros or ten dollars or whatever um, they think that, that, that they will, um, they deserve for this. So it's a, it's a really odd um, uh, thing, but um, if so, if anybody drops a shoe shoe uh, shoe brush, then do hand it back to them. But then uh, uh, don't get involved any further. Is that fair enough? Pat? It's, it's absolutely fair enough. I mean, the first time I ever saw anyone do it, of course, I was taken in as much as anybody else. So I picked it up and gave it back to him. <coughs> Excuse me, but of course, um, I can speak Turkish, yeah. so. He, of course, he didn't know what to do because <laughs> he wanted to try this on with me. But I was just asking him where he was from, where was his family from, how many children did he have, and that in the end we parted quite amicably. <laughs> but yes, that's it. That's a known con. Yes, you're right. There are some of these cons. That's true. Well, can we also ask about the name? Because there is very much a campaign by the Turkish authorities to rename Turkey Turkey. 
And I don't know where you stand on that. Well, it, it has actually been approved at the United Nations. So technically now Turkey is legally Turkia. Turkia is its Turkish name. Myself, I don't, I mean, I mean, sometimes my Twitter feed gets lit up with people arguing that this is an outrage and so on. Personally, I think a country has a right to call itself what it chooses <laughs> to call itself. And I really don't see this as a, a big issue. In a way, it's a little bit silly because Turkia requires a U with an umlaut, which most keyboards don't have. So it's always going to be slightly wrong when we do it on a, a, a British keyboard. But I re honestly, to me, I think when you look at the world, do we care whether Turkey calls itself Turkia or not? It doesn't seem worth losing sleep over for me personally. Well, Pat, thanks so much for um, for all of that and uh, also um, for giving us uh, um, an intriguing flavour of your book, which I would like to um, say is called Following Miss Bell, Travels Around Turkey in the Footsteps of Gertrude Bell, and it's published by Trailblazer. I'd like to uh, thank Pat as well very much indeed and also remind people that she is the author of A Handbook for Living in Turkey and she also wrote um, Istanbul. Ball Select, which was the Travel Trade Press best guidebook, I understand. So um, look for Pat Yale wherever you find your books and you will be uh, very happy. Um, so thanks again, Pat. Great to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Simon and Mick. That was lovely. I enjoyed that very much. Well, we will be uh, back next week. Um, meanwhile, have a safe and happy journey back to Turkey or Turkia. And we look forward to you joining us perhaps again soon. And hopefully uh, once Mick has been persuaded to go to the fascinating country you're lucky enough to live in. It is definitely going on my to-do list. But meanwhile, from me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mick and Simon. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.